Great, well, good morning. Please do uh, keep that passage open. That would be great, uh, helpful as we look through it. Page 1106. James has already prayed for us, so uh, let's get on and into it, shall we? Uh, Today is the uh, Cricket World Cup final, as James mentioned. Uh, England, New Zealand at Lord's starting about now. Uh, How I've ended up preaching twice today, I don't know. Uh, but it's fair to say that, um, that England have experienced a great turnaround in this Cricket World Cup campaign. During the group stages, they were apparently in great trouble. Key batsman Jason Roy was out, uh, injured, bad losses to Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Australia, seemingly on the brink of elimination. But then, perhaps against the odds... A great run to the final. Key players back in form. Australia eviscerated in the semi-final. And world champions, surely, this evening, we hope. A great, a great turnaround. And really, this chapter that we're looking at, chapter 12, is the account of a great turnaround, isn't it? How, how does the chapter begin when you look at it? We've got the Apostle James dead, the Apostle Peter in prison, and Herod's triumphant. How does it end? With Herod dead, the Apostle Peter free, and the Gospel triumphant. And we've got, haven't we, that summary statement, the central point, verse 24. The word of God continued to increase and spread. What what is the key point uh, for us this morning as we look at this? I think it's this. think in and through all circumstances, however bleak, God's words will triumph. God works as necessary to ensure the protection of his people to advance the gospel. And God works as necessary to overthrow those in opposition to the gospel. That is, isn't it, the big agenda of God. From the ministry of Jesus in gospels, through the book of Acts, down through the centuries, of church history across the globe until Jesus returns, God's agenda is for the rule of Jesus, the good news of Jesus to spread through the proclamation of his world across the millennia uh, down through history. Uh, This chapter 12 that we're looking at marks the end of, of part three, section three, if you like, of Luke's account in Acts. And it is a key part of the jigsaw, a key picture uh, Luke wants to paint for us, just so we understand how, how the gospel advances, how the good news of Jesus will spread. If we don't get it, if we don't get this chapter, then we're not going to have the confidence that Luke wants us to have about how the good news will spread. It's really interesting to, to look at how Acts is structured, because back in chapter 9 of Acts, you might remember, the Apostle Paul was converted commissioned to take the gospel out to the Gentiles. Fast forward to chapter 13, so what would be after this chapter, and Paul sets out with the gospel to take it to the nations. Luke could, couldn't he, have gone straight from 9 to 13. That, in one sense, would have been the continuation of the story, but he doesn't. It is as if Luke just presses the pause button And he zooms in in chapter 10, as we saw, in the conversion of the first Gentiles. He zooms in, chapter 11, on the establishment of the first church. And then we have these events of chapter 12. 
Luke is saying, look, this is how it will look as the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. Here is the prototype convert, Acts 10. Here is the prototype church, Acts 11. We'll be looking a bit at that next week. And here in chapter 12, here is a picture of what the experience, the experience will be as the gospel goes out. What will it look like? What will that experience be as the gospel goes out, breaks new grounds? Fierce and furious resistance will meet the advance of the gospel. That is the norm. But God is sovereign and the gospel goes forward. The opposition is certainly, isn't it, fierce uh, in this account. King Herod has got violence in his DNA. You know, if, if Herod appeared on the Ancestry TV show, Who Do You Think You Are? It would be grim. It would be 18 rated. His uncle Antipas uh, tried Jesus. His grandfather Herod uh, slaughtered the innocents, the baby boys, at the birth of Jesus. This is the Assad family, we could say, of the first century. Herod was insecure, disliked minorities, and he sought to ingratiate himself with the Jews, with a religious elite, by persecuting the church. Just look at verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Just notice in passing that detail in verse 3. Do you see that? The persecution is brought on by the state, that is Herod's, at the encouragement of the religious establishment, the Jews. In other words, it's a vote winner, this persecution stuff. It's interesting, that is a really big Bible theme, actually. From Daniel to Jeremiah to the trial of Jesus by Herod and Pilate to Peter in prison, James beheaded, persecution by the state, encouraged by the religious establishment. It's what Jesus warned his disciples, isn't it? Be on your guard, he said. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. It's interesting, isn't it? We shouldn't be surprised if, as is sometimes the case, opposition to the gospel, sometimes fierce opposition, comes from the religious big cheeses. That is the biblical pattern and the pattern of history. You've only got to flick through, haven't you, the book of Acts from here on in to see the hostile opposition to the advance of the gospel wherever it goes. So if we did look forward, chapter 14, there are plots against Paul and Barnabas, and Paul is stoned in Lystra. Chapter 16, Paul and Silas are flogged, jailed, in the city of Philippi. 17, there's a riot in Thessalonica. Chapter 18, Paul on trial again. Chapter 19, another riot. Paul's companions are arrested. Chapter 20, a a plot against Paul has to divert his travel plans because of it. And then chapter 21, Paul is arrested and kept prisoner for the remainder of the book. The 28 chapters I read 
uh, in Acts, and 22 of them include persecution. Wherever the gospel goes, there is hostile opposition. Yet surely, surely if we're to take anything from, from the life of Jesus, from the Acts of the Apostles, the heroes uh, of the Bible, church history, it, it is that the advance of the gospel is met with fierce and furious resistance. I guess at a, a small individual level, that, that is familiar to many of us, isn't it? Every one of us who belongs to Jesus will have experienced at least just a hint of that, that hostility. You know, the, the sneering remark or, or the hostile boss or the cooled friendship, that, that sense of exclusion, the marred family relationship. Our eldest daughter, Isabel, she had a transition day to, to high school this week and she got on the school bus and was greeted with a remark from a pupil who went up uh, last year, already on the bus, he said, oh, there's the Christian girl. 11 and 12-year-olds. Maybe we think, I was reflecting on this uh, this week, maybe we think, well, hostile opposition just doesn't really, doesn't really ring true. That You know, the small stuff that we face, that isn't really hostile opposition, not compared to what's going on in Iran, as many of us here know, or China, or the experience of Azia Bibi, the Christian in Pakistan, convicted uh, to death, but thankfully now acquitted. You know, what do we make of that? I wonder, I wonder if that says something about the faithlessness of the church in this country. Perhaps an unwillingness for us actually just boldly to stand up uh, for Jesus you know, sometimes don't we, don't we just seem to give in to that sense that, you know, culture requires us just to be silent or to be private or to be amenable, not to be controversial. Jesus in the workplace, just too dangerous. People see content, seem content. What would HR think? Jesus in the family, too controversial. People know what they think. Jesus with our friends, just too risky. You know, what if things just cool and freeze over? Note to myself, at least, I do need to pray for courage, to be courageous, to train myself, really, in having some guts for Jesus, because we're going to need it. That is what the Bible and history teaches. Yet what's interesting, I don't know whether you picked this up, is that hostile opposition is not really, is it, the key point of this chapter. Because John's death gets one verse. Instead, Luke's focus is to show us that God is sovereign, that God is in control. To emphasize that in all circumstances, God will ensure that the vital news of Jesus, it will spread, it will advance. So we've got, haven't we, Luke's focus on Peter's miraculous rescue the divine judgment of Herod, and the good news spreading and advancing. The word of God continued to increase and spread. If you think about it, as we thought at the beginning, this, this does look, doesn't it, like a lost cause. Herod seems close to checkmating the church. James is dead. 
Peter's locked up. That's two of the three founding apostles down. Peter's prospects sure don't look great. He's probably heading the same way. And Luke Luke emphasizes the security measures here in place around Peter just so we get how dire the situation is. Do you see that? So there are four squads of four soldiers at verse 4. Peter is chained to two soldiers sleeping between them. Lovely. Another two sentries guarding the entrance, verse 6. An iron gate, verse 10. You know, this is U.S. Army at Guantanamo Bay type security, not G4S at Norwich Prison. Yeah, that's the kind of level we've got here. And the guards, they know, don't they? They know full well who they're dealing with, uh, with Herod. This guy has got serious anger management issues. So no wonder in verse 19 there's this commotion, isn't there? Probably frantic terror. Where's Peter gone? As they find he's vanished, verse 18. And then sure enough, cross-examination, soldiers are executed. In, in highlighting the security measures, Luke is emphasizing, isn't he, the miraculous release of Peter. What a fantastic release. Peter is asleep. He has to be woken. This is great. An angel appears, verse 7, you know, gets out the iPhone torch. But he's got to strike Peter on the side to wake him up, kind of teenage style. The chains fall off Peter's wrist. The angel said to him, verse 8, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of prison. They passed the first and second guards, came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. What is the point here? This is a miraculous escape. Miraculous, that only God could pull off. By miraculous intervention, God has sent his own messenger into the prison cell to rescue. That is what Peter recognizes himself, doesn't he, in verse 11. Peter says, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches, from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And what happens to Herod? His his Donald Trump Sized ego takes over, verse 21, heads off to Tyre and Sidon, with whom he's been in dispute, makes peace, and then he milks it, doesn't he? Milks it for all it is worth. You can imagine the scene, can't you, as he robes himself up, proudly climbs up uh, on the throne, speaks to the people, some kind of political rally type setup. This is the voice of a god, not a man. They cry out, perhaps waving their Herod is God placards. You know, fireworks going on, pumping music. You've got the scene. But Herod did not give the glory to God. So struck down. Eaten by worms, he dies. Interestingly, you can read about this, this account, I understand, in the writings of Jephesus, the Jewish historian who records this, 44 AD, the glittering robes, the speech, how Herod died five days later from a stomach problem. Yeah, so, so where are we here? Before the gospel bursts out to the ends of the earth, what does Luke want us to understand? God is absolutely in control 
of all circumstances. However bleak they may seem to be for the advance of the gospel. God works as necessary for the protection of his people, for the advance of the gospel. God works as necessary to overthrow those who stand in the way of the advance of the gospel. What are the applications for us here? I want to suggest there are two applications. First application is this. Prayers are used by God to bring about the advance of the gospel. Do you see that in this passage, verse 5? Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So what is the knee-jerk, the immediate reaction of the church? It's to pray. And God answered those prayers. It's earnest prayer, isn't it? So this, isn't, this is the word that's used for the praying of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This isn't wandering prayer. It's not radio on in the background, driving to work prayer. This is focused, committed And they pray, it seems, before putting together a kind of Colditz-style strategic release plan. Prayer is the priority here. Also, encouragingly, for us, I think, there doesn't seem to be, does there, any real expectation in this prayer. So do you see that from the astonishment of, of verses 14 and 15? There's Peter. He's newly released goes to where they're praying, bangs on the door, Rhoda answers, Peter is at the door. She says, how do they respond? Verse 15, you're out of your mind. When she kept insisting it was so, they said it must be his angel. Peter has to keep knocking. It's ironic, isn't it? This is the only door he can't get through. He's escaped from prison, iron gate, soldiers, and he can't get into the prayer meeting. And when, event, when eventually he's let in, they are astonished. Verse 16. God answers what seem to be unbelieving prayers. Acts is a blueprint, isn't it, for the advance of the gospel. That's what we've seen. So we need to ask, don't we, is this, is this us? Are we immediate? Are we earnest, committed in prayer? We have so many opportunities, don't we? In freedom, we have to say, to, to get together to pray in, in house groups, prayer focus one-to-one, just spontaneously, as part of our way of life as a church. Is this us? You know, these Christians were meeting, weren't they, in this passage, at a time of real danger and persecution. That's clear from verse 1. It's not just the apostles that have been arrested. What is stopping us praying? I find prayer very, very difficult. What stops us? It can't be something, can it, as serious as what's going on in this passage. What's it for you? The latest Netflix box set binge? A sense that praying just isn't the best use of a Wednesday evening? Particularly with a nice cool beer in the fridge at home? A lack of confidence that we're just not the person that can pray well with others. Doubting that prayer makes 
any difference. God is able, isn't he, to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power at work in us. We've got to wonder, haven't we, what more might we see if we did give ourselves to prayer as they did in this chapter? God uses prayer to advance the gospel. I think second application is this. We just must learn to trust God. Must learn to trust God. We've not talked, have we, much about James. Maybe you think I've dodged James. James was put to death with a sword, probably a gruesome death. God could have rescued James as he rescued Peter, but but James is killed. God's purposes for James were not for him to be rescued. God's purposes for James on earth were complete and he was ready to receive James in heaven. We need, don't we, to learn to trust, trust God in every circumstance, whether it is rescue or not. It is very difficult. It's difficult, isn't it? Particularly for our own loved ones. Many of us know that. A friend of mine is a church church leader in Bristol and three years ago his wife died from cancer aged 40 out of nowhere much loved Christian wife and mother at the gospel coalface hard to think of anybody more committed leaving behind a grieving church fellowship a mourning but faith-filled husband and two young boys you've got to wonder you know what is God doing the psalmist writes in, in Psalm 116, he writes this, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. And Spurgeon, one of the great preachers in history, wrote this about those words and the death of Christians in one of the commentaries in this passage. Spurgeon wrote this, They shall not die prematurely. They shall be immortal till their work is done. And when their time comes to die, then their deaths shall be precious. The Lord watches over their dying beds, smooths their pillows, sustains their hearts, and receives their souls. Those who are redeemed with precious blood are so dear to God that even their deaths are precious to him. We we need to learn, don't we, to trust God in God's sovereignty, in every circumstance, whether it is rescue or not. Very often it will not be the rescue of the kind that we hope for or that we pray for. That is difficult. It's not what we want. We don't understand. But God is sovereign. We can trust the Lord that we are immortal. We're untouchable. Until the time has come, for us to be received in his glorious heaven. Until our task on earth is complete, we are immortal. What does that mean? It means, doesn't it, we we can prayerfully, we can boldly get on with advancing the gospel, the good news of the rule of Jesus, joining in the great work of God in history. No one can touch even the hair's on our heads, whatever the hostility we face, the good news of Jesus, it will win through. Let's pray.
Lord God, we thank you for this uh, wonderful, dramatic account of how your purposes in history are unstoppable, that the words will go out to flourish, to continue to flourish, to spread, and cannot be stopped. Lord, we praise you for that great truth, and we ask that you give us confidence in that, that we'd be able to live lives that are different because of that. Lord, that you'd increase our trust in you, to follow you more closely, to speak of your name. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.